Now, you ask for it. That's the series we're in. What are some of those questions we have that we don't always talk about? So today we're dealing with an interesting topic, the topic of gender and sexuality. You could call this message, who am I? And what does it matter to you? Or you could just say, what does the Bible say about sexuality and gender? So as we get started, I've got a couple of things I need to say. First, a parental warning, if you will. In today's message, we'll discuss the topics of sexuality and gender. All of this discussion is biblical and appropriate. But there will be words that will likely prompt questions for further discussion, maybe in your home, particularly from some children. I don't think this is a bad thing, but as church leaders, we recognize that you are the parent and we want to give you the decision, the opportunity to control when you have those discussions. So this is your warning. But I want you to know, by the way, that in most cases, your children are probably already talking about these things. So just beware of that. Secondly, a disclaimer. I mentioned last week that I was not a counselor nor a psychologist. And I just need to let you know that nothing has changed in the last seven days. That's still true. I have no new degrees, nor am I now a medical doctor. So I'm going to talk about a, a subject that a lot of people in those other fields deal with, maybe even on a daily basis. That's really not how we're approaching this today. We're dealing with this contentious issue, but our purpose is not to discuss this issue or any other issue in its entirety, nor to walk you through a specific situation you may be dealing with. Instead, I want to give you a biblical lens through which you can view this broad topic of gender and sexuality. Now, before I even get started, I want to say that this message may prompt questions from some of you because of what you're walking through. And you want a little further discussion. As pastors in our church, elders, the Bible calls us, church leaders, we want to help you find that help that you need. And so one thing we're going to do is, is kind of impromptu. This Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. in our chapel, there'll be some of our pastors who are available just to sit and maybe go back and forth with some questions on this issue that maybe you came in with or that this message um, causes you to have. There are also some other resources that we can point you to. There's an author and a scholar, his name is Preston Sprinkle, who, who writes a lot on this topic. In fact, he's written a book that I've utilized even in preparation today. It's called Embodied, Transgender Identities and the Church. What does the Bible say? I don't agree with everything he says, but he handles this in a respectful way. And I, I think, you know, we can point you in directions like that. I do want to remind you that few topics have dominated the cultural moment we're living in, like conversations of gender and sexuality. So all you got to do is pick up your phone, not right now, but you could Google countless blogs, you could watch videos of messages or speeches, you could see debates of Christians talking about this in different ways. Transitioning between genders, same-sex attraction, sexuality in general, it's part of the normal cultural conversation that we partake in today. But every day it seems like the conversation is growing louder and sometimes more complicated. And so as we get started, I recognize everybody here is coming probably from one of three views. Number one, some of you are thinking, wow, thanks. I really don't know much about this and I need to learn more. Thanks for the information. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, 
you don't know it, but I'm, I'm dealing with this in my circle of influence. My family, my little corner of the world, this will be helpful. There's a third group of you, though. Some of you are thinking, what? On a Sunday morning, why do we, let's just talk about Jesus, can't we? But here's the deal. This is going to be helpful regardless of which of those situations you're coming from. Because the reality is we're confronting in society this issue on a daily basis. Let me see if I can illustrate that. This week I was speaking in Brooklyn, New York, and I opened my phone just to see if anything was going on in the world, in the news, and the first thing that popped up is that this prominent actor, Wayne Brady, had announced that he was now pansexual. Fortunately, I'm not going to give you a test to see if you even know what that means. But that was this week. Also this week, after their defeat in the World Cup, the leader of the women's national soccer team, Megan Rapinoe, expressed her support for transgender athletes, even in women's soccer, this week. But this is not new to this week, is it? Across the country, in communities of all sizes, in libraries and bookstores, there are headlines being made because they're hosting something known as drag queen story hours. What is that? If you watch the news, you'll discover that the Assistant Secretary of Health a cabinet-level position in the Biden administration is Rachel Levine, a transgender individual. But you don't have to go looking, even in children's programming, like, yes, Blue's Clues, even on the Disney Channel. You see this introduced to our children. Last year, it made news because Hasbro, the toy developer decided that the toy I grew up with, Mr. Potato Head, no longer could be referred to as a Mr., but just Potato Head. The bottom line is if you leave your house with your elementary age children, unless you put your head in the sand, you're going to have these discussions, just as we have, even with a daughter who's visually impaired, because you're confronting these things in society. And you had better know where you stand. So what do we do? We, uh, we had better know what we believe. As a Christian seeking to answer cultural questions and discuss societal issues, you must always start with a clear understanding of your biblical convictions and your personal beliefs. So I want to ask you, do you know what you believe? We're going to talk about some issues, but not just this issue. Do you know what you believe? Last week, we were dealing with depression and anxiety and, and discouragement in our life. And we started in Scripture, in the book of Ephesians, at a place where it told us that the battles we face in life are not always physical battles. That sometimes they are spiritual battles. And, and we're battling not against flesh and blood, as it says, but we're battling against principalities of darkness. And I ask you, do you really believe that? Last week we heard Jesus say that all things are possible for those who believe in faith. And I ask you, do you believe that? See, you have to decide what you believe. I'm going to tell you a few things I believe in a moment and why. But first I want to pray for us. I'm praying a couple ways. I'm praying as I always do that my words and my thoughts would not return with void, but they would be honoring to God just as his word goes forth. 
I'm, I'm praying like I read this morning as I'm reading through the Bible, and it, it says that God so blessed Samuel that none of his words fell to the ground. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think he meant none of the words were wasted. So I don't want to waste words. I don't need you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to hear what God's word says today, okay? So let's pray together. God, you are worthy of our time, our focus, our energy, and our worship. And now we recognize that you've given us your word. So as Eli told Samuel, we're going to say to you, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Lord, as I hold out my hands, I ask you just to fill me, fill this place with your presence. Lord, as I lift up my hands, I pray that you would allow everything we say to not detract from who you are, but to give honor and glory to you. Lord, as I stretch out my arms, I just simply say, I surrender, God. Lord, have your will. Lord, may that be the prayer of each of us as we end this time together, that your will be done in our life today, just as it's being done in heaven. So, Lord, again, I pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, for you're my strength and my redeemer. Lord, let someone today begin a relationship with you because they've heard the truth of the gospel of you, Jesus the Christ. And Lord, allow all of us to walk away different as those who were created in your divine image. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I ask you if you knew what you believed, but I want to tell you three things I believe. I think maybe you should believe them too. First, I believe every person is created in the image of God. I believe that. Everyone you see, just look around this full room for a second. Everybody you see created in the image of God. We call that the Imago Dei. You bear God's image. Why do I believe that? Genesis 1, first page of the Bible, listen to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. By the way, this is a reminder that God introduces the Trinity on the first page of the Bible. Why does it say us? Because it's speaking for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Hear me today. You were created in the image of God. You are God's image bearer. But that's true of everyone. Say everyone. Everybody you know was created in God's likeness, in his image. But it said a second thing there. From creation, God created them, male and female. We know that from a biological sense. This is not biology class. Thank you, Jesus. But there is a reality. There's external evidence of what is a male and a female biologically. 
There's internal evidence of what is a male and a female biologically. And Scripture's teaching that in the image of God, that's the way God creates us. But there's a third thing. It also tells us that everybody was created on purpose for a purpose. It even gives us a couple of those purposes. One of those purposes is reproduction. So that's important we acknowledge that. That God created man and woman for a purpose of reproduction so that his world might grow. So that there might be flourishing that takes place through man and woman. But then he also created them so that they might rule over the world. So that they might live with purpose in their individual lives. God created us to be difference makers where we are. Now, what's the simple truth I want you to get out of this? It's not complicated. If everyone's created in the image of God, we must begin by treating them with the honor and dignity that every person deserves. Some of us need to make an adjustment just right there with that basic truth. There's nobody that you have the freedom to treat in an unkind way. I tell you that often. You should remember it. The Christ follower never has the liberty to be unkind. And this is one of the reasons. Because everybody you see is in the image of God. You need to treat them with that respect that God desires for those who were created in his image. You need to see them as God sees them. When I was a young man, I was privileged to to serve in the U.S. Capitol. I worked for one of our U.S. senators. Even before 9-11, that was one of the most secure places on the planet. Not just anybody could walk through the halls in the Russell Senate office building where I worked. But I could. Not because I was special. But because I had a badge. (laughs) I I wore the badge that said I was an employee. I, I worked for U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond. So not because of me, but because of that which I bore, the badge, I I could go to some pretty cool places. I could go on elevators that just everybody couldn't go on. I could even go down below the U.S. Capitol and I could see the subway system, the trains that the senators and the congressmen would take from their office so that they could make it to a vote there in the Capitol building. Kind of cool. But again, for one reason, because I had the badge. Those security guards, even though it was before 9-11, they were pretty tough. But they saw the badge, and they looked at me differently. What I want you to understand, if you're a follower of Christ, with the knowledge that you have, you have to look at everybody as having the imago Dei, the image of God. Are you treating people that way? Image. There's a second word. That my beliefs are situated around. And it's the word identity. I believe every person's identity is best discovered in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember the story of the temptation of Jesus? It takes place in Matthew chapter 4. It's the first thing that Jesus does in his ministry. Do you know what the enemy comes after? Let's just read it. Matthew 4 verse 3. The tempter, that's Satan, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, time out. If you're the son of God, what was he attacking? He was attacking his identity. You really know who you are? You really think you can do this? Are you secure in what you're professing? See, 
It's kind of a funny story. I read just this morning, a little later, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, hey, you don't worry about Satan. I was there when we kicked him out of heaven. So Jesus not only knew who he was, he knew who the tempter was. And by the way, how did he answer the tempter? You remember? Three times with Scripture. When you're going to battle the temptations of this life, there's only one way you're going to do that successfully. And that's with the Word of God. But there's something I want you to see here. The enemy's strategies are not new. He's boring. He attacks your identity. And he does that to shake your security. Because he doesn't want you to feel confident in who you are and who God created you to be. So let me ask you, where are you finding your identity? Is it your career? What people call you? Is it your education? The status you've achieved? Is it your bank account? (laughs) Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Or is it your sexuality? The way you present yourself to others. Where is your identity? I believe identity is not based on our feelings, but on who we're trusting in. What is the driving passion of our life? I believe that's biblical. In fact, there's a great verse in the Bible, because you know, Scripture teaches that when we begin a relationship with Christ, everything changes. It says if, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. All the old things are passed away. All things have become new. Listen to what the same author, the Apostle Paul, says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is he saying? He's teaching us that when we begin a relationship with Christ, we are now placing ourselves in Christ. Our identity has changed, and that changes everything. Let me make sure you understand that. Here's what Scripture teaches. Every one of us are separated from God at birth because of sin in our life. It's kind of this battle that we all have. You felt it even before you were a Christ follower, if you're a Christian. You've got this good thing that you were created in the image of God. Everybody has that goodness of God with which they were created. But then you've got this bad thing, sin, that necessarily separates you from a holy God and keeps you from experiencing God's best in your life. And if that's left undealt with, you'll go through all of life separated from Him. But God doesn't want that. That's why it says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why it says in Romans 5 that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The hope of the gospel is that I, in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my feelings, in spite of my desires, in spite of all the ways I've messed up, I can be placed in Christ so that when God the Father looks at me He doesn't see me as the culmination of the worst moments of sin in my life, but he sees his son, Jesus Christ. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So let me read that again with that in mind. So in Christ Jesus, it says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It doesn't say I don't have battles, I don't have temptations, I don't even sin. It doesn't say that, but it says the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Because when I trusted him, it changed 
everything. My identity must not be based on how I feel. It's based on what I believe. And that's something Christ followers have to understand. It's true of any decision you make. Can I just be real vulnerable to you? There are a lot of times I don't feel like being a preacher. There are a lot of Mondays I feel like quitting. There are days I don't feel like being a husband. There are some times I don't even feel like being a good father. But I don't do any of those things because of how I feel. I do those because of a calling in my life and convictions that I have. And the same has to be true of other choices that we make. Now, we've discovered that God created us in His image. He created us male and female. That's our biological sex. What happens in what is called gender dysphoria is a person says, I was born into a male body, but I feel like I'm not a male. Or I was born into a female body, but I feel like I'm not a female. And when transitioning takes place, a term that is used medically, what we're saying is happening is you're making a decision about your biology, your identity, based on your feeling. What I'm telling you as a Christ follower, we make decisions about our identity based on who we are in Christ. That's why in Galatians it says, in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. You all were baptized into Christ. You've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. That's why pastor and theologian Tim Keller wrote, the Bible says our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something beside Jesus. And until we settle that, nothing else matters. So before we move on, you understand you're an image bearer, and are you finding your identity in Christ? But there's a third thing I believe, and it affects everything in my life. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now that's a word some of you may not be familiar with. What does inerrancy mean? It it means I believe that Scripture is perfect. It's, It's true. In fact, we use words like this. We believe it is truth without any mixture of error. And so, when the Bible talks about history, it's not a history book. But guess what? I can, I can look at what the Bible says, and I can compare that to historical fact. In just a week, I'm going to be walking on the streets that the Apostle Paul walked on. God willing and weather permitting, we'll see the jail where likely Paul and Silas were thrown into jail. Next May, I'm going to be walking the streets where Jesus walked. With every day that passes, archaeologists uncover things that attest to the historical accuracy of Scripture. Scripture is not a science book either. But if Scripture speaks on scientific things, it gets it right. Did you know that Scripture talks about the earth being round long before scientists realized it was? Sorry if any of you flat earthers are out there. I just want you to know you can trust God's word. How do I know that? Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture. Say all. All. You know what all means? You know what all means in Hebrew? You know what all means in Greek? All means all. 
All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What you've got to decide is, do you believe that all Scripture is sufficient to guide you through life? We have a problem. Some of us, we like to pick and choose parts of Scriptures that we are going to depend on. We like the ones that make sense. We don't like the ones that speak against our sinful attitudes or actions. We don't like the things that step on our toes. That's why, you know, as a Bible preacher, someone that just kind of regularly puts out the scriptures, I've actually had people leave the churches I've pastored and they said, you step on our toes too much. Because we don't like hearing those things that are contrary to our feelings. This passage says all of it is giving. And then it says it's God-breathed. You got to decide if you believe that. The scripture comes from the mouth of God. Then it says it's purposeful. Did you see the purposes? It sometimes teaches us. It sometimes rebuked. Raise your hand if you've ever just been reading scripture and you felt rebuked. Well, if you're not raising your hand, you're not reading enough scripture. I'm just telling you. Corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. And why? It tells us in verse 17, so that we might be thoroughly equipped for good works. So remember our purpose. As Christians seeking to answer cultural questions and discuss societal issues, we have to always start with a clear understanding of our biblical convictions and our personal beliefs. So those are three things I believe. What we really need to ask is, in light of what we believe as Christians, how do we respond to these issues? How does a Bible-believing Christian respond to things that the Bible calls sin? Because that, that's what happens. We look at these things in society and we say, that's sinful. So how do we appropriately respond to that? Now, I want to make this so clear. So maybe you just need to be reminded of what sin is. Sin's just missing God's mark. It's like saying God put the standard here. And as Romans said, we always fall short. Sin is anything we do that God said, don't do that. Or anything we don't do where God says, you should do this. And so that's why the Bible says all of us are sinners. And even as Christ followers, we still sin. So does the Bible speak to the issue of sin? Yes. Actually, the Bible speaks even to these issues, even the specific of transgenderism. Can you believe that? So we started in the Old Testament on the first page of the Bible. Did you know just a couple books into the Bible, if you go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22, listen to the word of God. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. You're thinking, Pastor Paul, that's the Old Testament. Just a reminder, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Does the New Testament say anything? Well, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Time out. I don't do this often. because I don't want to confuse you. You can trust just what you're reading from the pages of a good translation of Scripture. But if you really want to know what that original word in the Greek language says in that case... It's describing a man who dresses up like a man and stands on the street as a prostitute. I'm sorry, a man that dresses up like a woman and stands on the street as a prostitute to attract other men. 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what that was? That was just a reminder that all of us are on level ground at the foot of the cross. We like to look at some sins and think, man, I sure am thankful I don't sin like that person over there. But the Bible reminds us that there's a whole multitude of ways that you can be out of sync and out of step with God. All kinds of sin. And in fact, Paul even says that some of the people at the church used to commit some of the sins that he listed. I want to tell you today the church has to be consistent when it comes to sin. So what do we believe? As Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that any sexual relationship outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Can I say that again? As Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that any sexual relationship outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. It says this on the second page of the Bible. There's a way it's supposed to be. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother, is united with his wife. They become one flesh. Jesus, when asked about marriage, quoted Genesis chapter 2, this verse I just read. The Apostle Paul, when speaking to the early church, quoted Jesus, quoting Genesis 2. The scriptures are consistent in this issue. So let me be more clear for those of you that may be confused. That means that an unmarried couple cohabiting, even if they're in church every week, that are having a sexual relationship, the Bible calls that fornication, and the Bible calls that sin. That means that a married individual who's having a sexual relationship with another person other than their spouse, the Bible calls that adultery, and the Bible calls that sin. Consistently, that means that a man who is having a sec sexual relationship in any setting with another man or a woman who's having a sexual relationship in any setting with another woman is what the Bible calls homosexual and consistently throughout Scripture. The Bible calls that sin. And that means, as illustrated by the verses I mentioned, that a man who because of feelings however real they may be to that person, or a woman who, because of feelings, no matter how real they may be, who begins to act like a person of the opposite sex from which they were born, or living in sin. Now, there's a few of us that feels like, whew, we skated by. Let me just remind you how Jesus took it to a whole nother level. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus said, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Church, I just want us to be consistent. This issue we are dealing with today, it's an issue of sin. But it's not the only issue of sin that is eating up the church. Sexual sins are a little different. 
The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. So what Paul does is answer a question some of you are asking. Can a person be a follower of Jesus and commit these sexual sins? According to Scripture, yes. Because you would not have the Holy Spirit of God if this were not a possibility. But Scripture teaches that if we're walking in darkness consistently... If we're living in sin without conviction and an unrepentant heart, that would be evidence that we're not walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in that previous passage, chapter 6, verse 11, that's what some of you were, but praise the Lord, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, let's just turn it positive for a second. How many of you are grateful that you were washed, that you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God? Man, I'm so thankful that as we sang a moment ago, he picked me up and he turned me around. He put my feet on solid ground. I'm so thankful when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see the culmination of my worst sins, but the Father sees me clothed in the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that when I confess my sins to the Lord, Jesus takes it and he separates it as far as the east is from the west. The right response to any sin is sincere confession and genuine repentance. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. That's the hope of the church. And so when we talk about these issues or any issue... If we believe everybody is created in the image of God, if we believe your ultimate identity can be found in Jesus Christ, if we believe the truth of Scripture, then how we talk to others is that we present to them the hope of the gospel. That's who we are, the church. So as I've often done, I begin to ask, is there a Jesus story that speaks to this? And it didn't take me long to say, well, matter of fact, there is. It's going to be one you're familiar with. It's in John chapter 8, but I'm going to read the last phrase from John chapter 7. Jesus had been interacting with some people, and it says they all went home. But in verse 53, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, just a quick question, class. What do we know that Jesus liked to do on the Mount of Olives? Good. I'm so proud of you. Jesus liked to pray. He would go to the Mount of Olives and he would pray there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that teaches us that when we're going to confront the difficult things of life, the only way we can confront those is on our knees in prayer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, at dawn, it says, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around and he sat down to teach them. You've heard this story. Some of you didn't realize it took place in the temple courts. This took place at church. And that's why we're having this discussion today. It's worth talking about these things in the house of God. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now just think about that. Another quick question. How many people are necessarily involved for adultery to take place? 
Where's the man? What were these people doing? Standing in judgment, embarrassing this woman. Drag, it literally says caught in the act. So they're dragging her out, putting her in public, not treating her as an image bearer. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And we don't know what he wrote. He might have written down the specific law of Moses they were talking about. He might have written down, he might have written down their names just to remind us that God knows every hair on your head. He might have written down some other women's names or their specific sins. But what we know is in that moment, he took the attention away from that humiliated woman. And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And then again, he stooped down. <laughs> now, I love this. Don't miss this. The second time, he rode in the sand. The first time... He was taking the attention off of the humil humiliated woman. Now he's taking the attention off of the humiliated men. You're going to see something consistent about Jesus. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. To only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then, John 3.17, For He did not come into the world to what? Remember that, church. He did not come into the world to condemn the world. We're condemned already without Jesus. It's not our job to condemn anyone. So Jesus declared, Go now, and I love the way this is phrased, and leave your life of sin. All right? So I'm going to wrap this up by giving you two truths and then we're going to pray. First, Jesus treated everyone in this story with compassion and grace. Did you catch that? The Jesus way is always going to be filled with compassion and grace. Why? Because there's a short verse in the Bible you can learn and you can walk away saying, I learned a verse at church today. Here it is. God is love. So we really do love if we're going to be like him because that's who he is. The greatest act of God ever in human history was a divine act of compassion and grace as Jesus died on the cross suffering for our sins. If we're going to see people like Jesus sees people, we're going to be compassionate and full of grace. Jesus knew this woman, even called in the act of sin, was created in God's image, just like the accusers. But there's a second truth. Jesus always acted with compassion and grace. But secondly, Jesus did not hesitate to speak the truth in love. 
Go now and leave your life of sin. As Christ's followers, this is where some of us can do better. Speaking the truth in love. That's what it calls it in Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect mature as the body of him with the head of Christ. It's not a surprise that Jesus got this right. Because <laughs> he's Jesus, right? He's God. And John 1.17 tells us the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, that was perfected in Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Now, 54 years old, pastoring for 30 years. Here's what I've learned. We hang out on the edges. Some of you are too far on the edge. Some of you are on the compassion edge. You're like a hippie. I mean, you're just like, can't we just love everybody? I mean, let's just love them to Jesus. I love everybody. I just need them to know. Let's just let them know how much I love them. I mean, you're so conflict diverse. I mean, you, you couldn't even, you just are, you're just a lover. Some of you, you think you're the judge. So honestly, you're looking down your sinful noses at the sins of everybody else just because they're different from yours. Both of these are wrong. The Jesus way is truth and grace. Jesus confronted the sin. In fact, he told her, stop it. Don't live this way anymore. Look again at Jesus. He saw this woman as God's image bearer. He helped her find her new identity in him. He pointed her to the truth of scripture and he confronted the issue of sin. I mentioned Preston Sprinkle. I love how he described the Jesus way. We must see everyone around us as individuals created in the image of God. We must tirelessly encourage everyone to find their identity in Christ. We must hold fast to the truth of Scripture while confronting the issue of sin. Sprinkle said, Jesus is building an upside-down kingdom where outcasts have their feet washed. The marginalized are welcome. Dehumanized people feel humanized once again. Truth is upheld, celebrated, and proclaimed where those who fall short of the truth are loved. That's who we've got to be. Our campus pastors are preaching today, so we were meeting earlier this week, and Lucas, he's preaching at Lake Carroll, and he said, man, I saw this just a couple weeks ago out at the beach. Sunday afternoon, we wanted just to take our kids to the beach. We didn't know how many more times we'd do that. As we were sitting there, we got so encouraged because we looked out, and I don't know if it was a church or just a group of Christ followers, but there was a baptism that was taking place. And I mean, they were baptizing one after another. They were lifting their hands in praise. It was a great time. I saw the church. And he said, then I turned. And as I turned, I, I saw two young women embracing and then passionately kissing one another there in the waves. And I thought, this is a picture of where we are. The church is in the world, but we're not of the world. And we've got to figure out how to navigate this season in a way that honors Him. May we learn to treat God's image bearers with compassion and grace while boldly speaking His truth and love. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were physically here, 
and he were bending down writing in the sand to you today, what would he be writing? Would he say, don't you understand? You're bearing my image? Would he say, why haven't you found your identity in me? Would he say, why aren't you living according to the truths of Scripture? One more thing. Verse 9. I love how it ends. Until only Jesus was left with the woman who was still standing there. If you're hearing these words and you're eat up with grief and inner turmoil, maybe because of past sins, maybe because of abuse that you've survived, but for whatever reason you feel all alone, let me just tell you, you're not. Jesus is still standing there. But for others of us, we need to look around. Because there are some people in our little corner of the world that feel like they're all alone. And Jesus is with them. But we need to go stand with them so that they know they were created in God's image. They can find their identity in Christ. And they can depend on the truth of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father God, we now come to that place where we simply say, have your will in our lives. Lord, I pray that in these next few moments as we sing more truth, worshiping you. Lord, that we would really think through those three words, image. Do we see your image in us? Lord, help that person that's struggling to see themselves in your image. Let them feel your love. Do we see others as image bearers? Help those of us who are too judgmental. Identity. Lord, I pray for that person that's never begun a relationship with you. May this even be the moment of their salvation. And if that's you, cry out to him right now and simply say something like this. Say, Jesus, I know I need you. I am a sinner. Like everybody else. But I know you died for my sin. And so I confess, I turn from sin. And from this day forward, I'm going to follow you. Tell him thank you. And then, Lord, for all of us, so much of your body gathered here, professing Christ's followers, may we truly begin to live our lives looking at everything we face through the lens of your word, the scriptures. I pray for healing and I pray for help even as we continue to honor you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship. Christ is my reward and all my